Lost in Context, a podcast where we delve into works of literature and the historical context behind them. I'm Karis, your host, and today I'm extremely excited to be looking at our first piece of modern historical fiction, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See, written by Anthony Dore, whose latest book, Cloud Cookie Land, came out just a few weeks ago. Set in the Second World War, All the Light We Cannot See is a book that brilliantly weaves together the stories of two children on opposite sides of the war. Blind French girl Marie Law, who has fled Paris with her father to stay with her great-uncle Etienne in Saint-Malo, and orphan German boy Werner, who has escaped a suffocating future in the mines by attaining a place at Schultforte, a school taken over by the Nazi regime. As the war progresses, Werner is forced into military service, though he is still under age, and he finds himself using his skills in mathematics and science to locate pockets of resistance using radio waves, and those who are caught are mercilessly murdered before his eyes. His work takes him across Europe, finally ending up in San Marlo towards the end of the war, where his path eventually crosses with Marie Laws. Meanwhile, Marie Laws' father has been arrested, and she and Etienne have become part of the local resistance, using a secret radio to broadcast intelligence to the Allies. When San Marlo is bombed as part of the Allied plans for invasion, Werner and Marie Law are both initially trapped, but Werner saves Marie Law's life when German Sergeant Major von Rumpel tries to kill Marie Law in order to gain the Sea of Flames, a precious stone that she is guarding. The narrative is quite complex, and Dawn not only switches between the two main protagonists, but also between multiple time zones, before, during, and after the war. While the novel spans multiple time periods, we can be confident of its historical accuracy, as Dawn spent ten years crafting the story together, and it is the result of extensive research into Nazi Germany and occupied France. One of the epigraphs at the beginning of this book is taken from Joseph Goebbels, Reich Minister of Propaganda from 1933 to 1945, and he says, It would not have been possible for us to take power or to use it in the ways which we have without the radio. Radio was a relatively new technology, and it was in the 1930s that there was a significant increase in the audience for radio, especially in Germany, as the Nazis had commissioned a special people's receiver, which was an affordable range of radios that allowed the vast majority of the public to purchase one. Its ubiquity is important for understanding propaganda in Nazi Germany, and Reich Minister Albert Speer said that through Hitler's use of the radio, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought. However, the radio also had its role to play in resistance. While the people's receiver was made as cheaply as possible, and generally lacked shortwave bands and did not pick up weak signals easily, after dark people could use an external antenna to listen to foreign radio broadcasts, and clandestine listening became a key feature of resistance in occupied countries, including Germany. When Werner makes his own radio while still at the orphanage, it is through listening to foreign programmes that he and his sister Jutta become aware of how their country is perceived by others, and aware of the atrocities their country is committing in the war. Unfortunately, the Nazis' propaganda did not stop with the radio, but they systematically tried to turn children into loyal agents of the state, and by using child protagonists, Dora is able to explore the effect of this indoctrination in a distinctive way. We learn that other boys in the orphanage, Hans and Herbert, gradually become more militant after joining the Hitler Youth, and start to adopt Nazi ideology, particularly in regards to race, despite being raised by a caring French woman who would naturally fall into the category of non-German. The Hitler Youth was an organisation that children were encouraged to attend once they reached the age of 10, until 1936 where it was then made compulsory for all children. 
However, even before then, the Nazis used schools as a platform to promote their ideology. While Schultwater is slightly different because it is an elite Nazi school, schools across the country were forced to follow a new curriculum that covered subjects including eugenics and race studies, and studies and investigations have shown this to have been extremely effective in proliferating ideologies such as anti-Semitism. One of the reasons it was so successful is because the Nazis recognised the importance of gaining not just the support, but also the obedience of the next generation. Hitler spoke of his Third Reich lasting for a thousand years. To ensure this, he would need the generations to come to continue his ideas and policies. Teachers, a profession that is regarded as having a decisive impact on children's futures, were heavily impacted by the Nazi regime themselves. Once Hitler came to power, he purged the public school system of teachers deemed to be Jews or too politically unreliable to teach children. Meanwhile, 97% of public school teachers joined the Nationalist Socialist Teachers League, and it was teachers who joined the Nazi party in greater numbers than any other profession. Furthermore, one of the reasons why Nazi ideology was so popular among children was because for them, all this was taking place in the period in which humans are most susceptible to outside influences. We can see this with Werner. He is clearly a character who is perceptive and empathetic, and his care for his friend Frederick at a time where everyone is being encouraged to leave the weak behind, to be blotted out by evolution, is truly moving. However, his feelings of compassion, his humanity even, are brought into conflict with his ambitions to stay at the school and succeed in his dreams to become a scientist. And arguably, it is by throwing himself into his studies that Werner tries to avoid having to confront his scruples about what the regime he is supporting through his work is actually doing. But to turn now to Marie Law's side of the story, we follow her and her father as they have to flee Paris, and through her blindness, we get to experience some of the chaos and the confusion of the fall of Paris. While war was declared in September 1939, it was only after a 10-month phony war that Germany began its advance on France in earnest on the 10th of May 1940, attacking the Netherlands and Belgium, and for most people the war felt distant and even unreal. However, a month later on the 10th of June, the French government fled Paris and within four days the city was captured and occupied by the Germans. Within these four days, two million Parisians had followed the example of their government, fleeing Paris on all modes of transport, although the lack of fuel reduced many of them to walking. The slow-moving river of refugees took 10 hours to cover 30 kilometres, leaving behind them a city deserted by comparison. Marie Law's experience of fleeing Paris would have been shared by countless others. As a blind child, she relies fully on her father to lead her to a place of safety. She doesn't know where she is going or what is happening around her. She can only hear the panicked conversations of other refugees. This disorientating and uncertain situation, with bewildered refugees demoralised by the fall of their country to a foreign power and in despair over their futures, would have been an unforgettable experience, and it was only the beginning of more than four long years of occupation, hardship and deprivation. Marie Law spends these years in San Marlo with her great-uncle Etienne, who is well off though scarred by his experience in the First World War, and despite their comparative wealth, they too experienced shortages, difficulties and restrictions, reminding us that money did not always guarantee you a more comfortable way of life during the war. Of course, money was still a huge incentive, particularly for people in the black market, or collaborators such as the character of Claude Levitt, who turns in Marie Law's father and has him arrested for suspicious activity. 
It's important to distinguish between those Leibniz collaborators who were pressurised into supporting the Nazis in order to save their lives or support their starving families, and those who freely chose to betray their neighbours and friends. Claude Levitt falls into the latter category. He realises how much money he can make through collaboration, and the fact that others are suffering acts only as an incentive, as he will become even richer by comparison. While there was collaboration going on, there was also resistance. And one of the things Dor does in this book is celebrate members of the resistance who risk their lives by taking a stand against the Nazi occupation. What's really interesting is the way in which Madame Manick's resistance group forms. They don't join one of the national resistance organisations, nor are they inspired to form after listening to de Gaulle's famous radio broadcasts from London. Instead, it emerges because these women get together and complain about all the restraints of occupation life, the rationing, the curfew, the hypocrisy, and Madame Manick points out that by not resisting, they're being complicit with the system, rousing them to action. Before the conversation continues, however, the women are given a chance to back out, and many do. Madame Manick was extraordinarily brave, even suggesting the idea of resistance, aware that any of them could cave and turn her in, and yet we see her reliance on community and friendship. She trusts her friends, and as far as we know, none of them betray each other suggesting that amidst this atmosphere of distrust, these women could trust each other, and I think this is one of their greatest achievements. By having so many people leave initially, however, and by having Marinor's great-uncle show so much opposition to becoming involved, Dora's reminding us of how small the resistance really was, and rightly so, as this is a common misconception. Most historians agree that less than 2% of the population, 500,000 people at most, were involved in the resistance, which is a strikingly low figure. While we'll never know exactly how many people were involved, especially if we're counting more passive forms of resistance, Dor helps us recognise that they were a tiny but brave minority amidst a society that would do little or nothing to oppose the occupation. While the acts of resistance that Madame Manic and her friends carry out initially seem quite insignificant, such as sending shipments to the wrong destinations, or painting a stray dog the colours of the French flag, they do become more serious, focusing less on disruption and more on effective sabotage, and the danger increases as well, forcing Madame Manic and Marie Law to start using code names. However, their humble beginnings are important to note and can be summed up through Madame Manic's philosophy when she says, Do you know what happens when you drop a frog in a pot of boiling water? It jumps out. But do you know what happens when you put the frog in a pot of cool water and then slowly bring it to a boil? The frog cooks. The significance of more minor activities in the resistance can often be overlooked, but here Dora is reminding us that it was a necessary springboard for more consequential action, and Marie-Laure and Etienne eventually become involved in relaying intelligence to the Allies, a contribution to ending the war, the full significance of which will never be fully realised or understood. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you found it interesting how Dora explores the harsh reality of living through the Second World War as a child, but also how even children could play a significant role in the outcome of the war. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to hear more, you're welcome to subscribe to receive updates of future episodes, or follow Text in Context on Instagram to hear about our upcoming texts.